Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List. Uh, today's episode we're going to hit up today. Um, but before we do, we hit up the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox where you can send me your uh, uh, feedback, uh, etc. You know the drill by now. Uh, and if you haven't, uh, send me an email at primarycarepod at gmail.com, will you? And uh, give me your feedback, uh, any articles you want me to read or review. Uh, today, before we get into it, um, we have a joke uh, from an anonymous listener. Dr. List, here's a joke for you. A husband notices his wife's hearing is deteriorating deteriorating and deci- deterior deteriorating yes that's a real word Oof. okay uh let me just keep moving on um he's and decides to visit her doctor for advice um so uh patient comes to the doctor and says i can't speak to my wife directly as she might find it offensive given our old age he says to the doctor doctor says there's a simple trick you can try to determine her hearing says the doctor Simply ask her a question at a really long distance away, and if she doesn't hear you, move slightly closer and ask again until she does. That night, the husband returns home, sees his wife in the kitchen cooking. He thinks to himself, what a perfect opportunity to test. So he stands in the doorway of the kitchen and promptly asks, what's for dinner, honey? No answer. So he moves closer. What's for dinner, honey? Still no answer. He moves even closer. What's for dinner, honey? Still, his wife doesn't answer. He now sees how serious her hearing problem is. At this point, he stood right next to his wife and asks, What's for dinner, honey? For the fourth time, we're having chicken. All right, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well... Welcome back to the podcast, pod girls, pod boys, pod people. It is your boy, Dr. Mark List, at you with another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. And, you know, one thing that we're talking about today, it came in my journal watch inbox, which um, is a topic I love talking about with patients and medical students, is prostate cancer screening. Um, And, you know, we've talked about prostate cancer screening, the fact that number needed to screen is very, very high. Um, And a lot of that is because some of the trials that were used in the past to determine these numbers are pretty garbage. The uh, PLCO, which was the um, American trial for prostate cancer screening, pretty garbage. Um, The ERSPC, the initial data from 2012, uh, didn't show, you know, it was basically like uh, a number needed to screen in, in like a thousand uh, to for one patient to benefit. Um, but some of the data since then in the ERSPC um, has shown improvement in that number needed to screen overall and 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 some uh, some overall net benefit. We know that um, in the last two decades in America, male prostate cancer-specific mortality has been declining um, with screening and better treatment and better selective uh, uh, treatment, Uh, so not treating as low-grade Gleason's but treating high-grade Gleason prostate cancers. Um, but this was, uh, you know, this has been a topic that we've talked about for a long time, that the number needed to harm 
about 20% of people are harmed by prostate cancer screening because they undergo needless biopsies. So the number needed to harm is about five. The number needed to treat um, is in the several hundreds. Um, at best, it's about one in a hundred. If you have like the best case scenario, the number of screens about a hundred if to save one life. But in reality, it's probably closer to 300, 400. Uh, that number is very um, study dependent, which study you're looking at. And all the studies are very, very variable. Um, but overall, the harms tend to be, uh, out, you know, tend to be very high. USPFTF has a uh, United States Preventive Task Force Services says grade C. Uh, you can consider it, have a shared decision making. Again, because of the uh, risks and harms are certainly kind of mingled. Uh, there are many other organizations which are a little bit more aggressive in terms of their overall recommendations. Um, but this has been a topic, uh, you know, is there something better that we can do to do better screening in our patients for prostate cancer and get better number needed to screens with fewer number needed to harms? A, a bigger number needed to harm, so that means that you need to treat more people to harm somebody, so you're reducing harms while increasing benefits. Well, this study comes to us out of Sweden, okay? Uh, there are um, 1,500 patients in this trial, right? And so this was... Um, a study that looked at men 50 to 75 and basically said, we're going to screen you for prostate cancer. If you have an elevated PSA, we're going to randomly assign you to undergo a standard biopsy or to undergo MRI with either then targeted or standard biopsy if the MRI suggests prostate cancer. So, right, this experimental biopsy group, okay? And basically the primary outcome was the proportion of men who had in, in the population with clinically significant prostate cancer, so Gleason greater than seven, versus seeing if we can reduce the number of Gleason sixes, so the MRI would be more specific to show us which prostate cancers we need to treat and which ones we can leave alone. And so what did it show? Well, it showed that uh, intention to treat analysis group, a clinically significant prostate cancer was diagnosed in 21% of the experimental biopsy group as compared with 18% in the standard biopsy group. Okay, so uh, it was non-inferior. Um, it was only three percentage points better in terms of uh, more likely to get a Gleason 7 versus a Gleason 6. So potentially you are, uh, you know, limiting the number of biopsies that you can have. Um, the percentage of clinically insignificant cancers was much, 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 much lower in that biopsy group versus the standard biopsy group, right? So 4% in the standard biopsy group versus 12%, or sorry, backwards. Insignificant cancer, only 4% in the experimental biopsy group using the MRI to trigger it versus 12%. So three times better, right? Relative relative improvement of 300%, uh, absolute risk reduction of 8%. So again, that's pretty darn good. Um, so this idea that, you know, maybe we could target with an MRI to, uh, you know, better screen. Um, the interesting piece of this study, though, um, was that they used a PSA score of three or higher. You know, in the United States, we tend to use a score of four or higher to eliminate a lot of false positives. Um, and the higher up that PSA number goes, the more likely it is to be prostate cancer, the more likely it is to be an aggressive prostate cancer. Um, but here's a here's another, this was not part of their um, primary uh, target, uh, their primary outcome. But in the patients who did not get an MRI, okay, there were 
3% of patients in the normal screening group underwent biopsy. Okay, so that's, that's a significant percentage of patients. And again, that, that might hold true in your world. If somebody has a, a, a PSA above four, um, if you're using that range here, again, they use three, which is a little bit low for me. Um, they, 73% underwent biopsy. And again, one out of every five of those patients be harmed by that biopsy, according to studies. Uh, my local urologists say that's not the case. Um, I, it, again, it's hard to, you know, expert opinion versus trial data. Um, in, in this trial, in the MRI group, right, so the patients that had an elevated PSA but then went under, underwent MRI, only 36% underwent biopsy. So almost reducing the amount of biopsies by half, which that's always part of the hard part about ca prostate cancer screening is you don't want to miss prostate cancers, but you have a ton of false positives with that PSA, a ton. In fact, 75% are usually falsely positive. Okay, Eight, you know, this 80 to 75% of your PSAs that are elevated aren't actually prostate cancer, they're BPH or they're inflammation or whatever the case may be. So again, I think that is, I think that's very, very, very important to note that yes, this would greatly reduce the risk of needing a biopsy if you have a positive PSA. Again, in this trial, uh, you know, 70, you know, 73% underwent prostate uh, biopsy in the regular group, half of that in the, um, in the MRI group. And so if you can reduce the rate of false positives, um, that makes the PSA a better test. What are the downsides? Well, number one, this study, a PSA screen level of three, pretty darn low. I mean, I think that's already a, a, a significant issue compared to what we normally screen at or consider a positive screen. I don't know, you people from Sweden, I have a, a total of like five listeners from Sweden. Um, so maybe this is normal that a PSA screen above three is considered a positive, or maybe this is just part of the trial data to, to try to find more, uh, more cancers. I, I don't know. Um, I think that the, um, I think that Right. The big other concern is, at least in America, MRIs are very abundant, but they are not cheap. And so prostate cancer screening, right, some of the things are you want to try to um, catch all the cancers, right? That's one part about screening is that you don't want to miss cancers. But you also want it to be something that can be done by the average population because the risks are low, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the downsides about mammography, we get a lot of mammograms, but a lot of women get unnecessary biopsies, a lot of uh, false positive mammos, a lot of uh, biopsies, which then cause a lot of anxiety and a lot of harm and and overall have their own issues. With PSAs, the big downside is the fact that a lot of men end up having a lot of false positives. You, we'll talk a little bit uh, in a little bit about how you can reduce that, but here this idea that you can use an MRI on those people then to then see who'd actually benefit from a biopsy. And this study proves that, right? That, that maybe this definitely, it wasn't their primary outcome, but it definitely reduced the number of people who needed to undergo, undergo biopsy. Um, it, it slightly uh, found a higher chance for clinically significant Gleason, you know, Gleason 7 plus cancers versus lower cancers. It reduced the overdiagnosis burden by reducing the number of Gleason 6s that were found or less than Gleason 6s. So again, those are cancers that um, at least my local urologists tell me they don't treat. And that's what I see in their notes anyways, that they are kind of observing those people. Um, if you're in an area where your urologists are really aggressive for whatever reason, whether that's their 
um, motivation or whether there's economic benefits for them doing more things and not just watching Gleason sixes. Um, maybe they that's their their standard of care in your area is to treat Gleason sixes or lower um, and be more aggressive. Um, again, that's not what I see locally. So again, I have more. Um, I have more comfort sending to my urologist locally because I know that they do a good job being conservative and just kind of watching those low-grade cancers. So um, overall, right, the big issue still remains that PSA is not an accurate test. Um, super high rates of false positives, super high complication rates in terms of uh, needing to go undergo biopsies and potential complications from biopsies, and still that potential treatment of overdiagnosing cancers and overtreating low-grade cancers. These are all still things that are issues with prostate cancer screening. Uh, that's not solved by this. Um, potentially, um, if we could get cheaper MRIs or insurance paid for MRIs, then maybe we could reduce the, the number of um, biopsies needed. But, you know, we're reducing biopsies at the cost of doing all these MRIs, which, you know, have their own issues and maybe find incidentalomas or other incidental findings that have their own concerns. Um, there's another trial. Um, I, I looked at other recent data. This is from a, a journal from the European Urology uh, Group. And this was the effects of MRI targeting on overdiagnosis and overtreatment of prostate cancer. This was, again, just locally here, um, just recently here in June of 2021, um, where this was another uh, European trial that looked at MRI-targeted biopsying. And after using MRIs, the number needed to treat was about 57 in their trial, so that was pretty good. Um, the number needed to treat um, for all comers, uh, so they had a couple of targeted uh, cases, et cetera, uh, um, et cetera, for people that had had like negative biopsies in the past. Um, the number needed to treat for the general population was like 127 after using MRIs. Uh, number needed to, to treat, or number needed to diagnose, and number needed to treat to prevent one prostate cancer death of 127 and 57. Um, so again, better numbers than we see in the general screening populations. This was a, a, a different study I'm not going to get into details of, um, but using MRI um, in a real-life scenario, basically. So um, overall, you know, this doesn't look that... Um, that much better, right? I, I guess it does. Uh, it does reduce your risk of unnecessary biopsy by literally uh, a reduction of 50%, right? Uh, an absolute risk reduction of 37, 36%. Um, so that's really beneficial. Um, the overall, it barely found more high-grade Gleason prostate cancers. It did reduce the number of low-grade Gleasons biopsied. Um, so we're preventing, I guess, some overdiagnosis. But man, the costs of MRIs, the number of MRIs that we'd be adding to our healthcare system just to put this as part of the protocol, PSA is still a really difficult test. Um, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying don't have those conversations with patients. But here is a quote unquote real world scenario of adding MRIs after PSAs before the biopsy to see if that would help. And uh, the data's mixed, right? Um, I mean, all benefit. The data is very clearly like MRI adds to it, but the cost, right? I mean, that's really significant. It's another step. It, it adds a whole nother layer of complexity. Um, it adds a whole nother layer of stress for patients. Um, what I do with my own patients to, to improve the, uh, to lower the false positive rates, um, uh, 
I, after I get a positive PSA, I will have the patient come back. I will have them abstain from masturbation or sex 24 hours before the, um, the repeat PSA to see if we can get a lower value. Um, I repeat the PSA in usually about three months to six months to see if we see an upward or downward trend. Um, oftentimes with BPH, if a patient comes in and they have um, an inflamed prostate for whatever reason, um, their PSA is temporarily increased, uh, you will see massive elevations of PSAs and then suddenly it'll be normal the next in six months to a year. So I have no problem for most prostate cancers, especially in guys who are asymptomatic, not doing anything with an elevated PSA and just rechecking in six months um, and kind of doing, um, I stole that from Hopkins. Hopkins also uses fluoroquinolones um, or there are protocols out there. I don't remember if it's the Hopkins protocol or not that use fluoroquinolone antibiotics prior to the uh, repeat PSA to see if there is some prostatic inflammation or infection um, to reduce that. Uh, have They have them abstain from sex or masturbation for even longer um, to see if that will reduce the um, maybe falsely elevated PSA from any recent sexual activity. Um, so that's kind of how I lower the false positive rates. And I've had many guys who have a elevated PSA that we recheck and their PSA is normal. And then basically I put them back in the year long cycle and oftentimes it's just BPH. Um, you know, I, you notice I didn't mention digirectal exam. Look, the data on digirectal exams, it's a 50-50 coin flip. The total accuracy of digirectal exam is 50-50 in terms of whether or not it's accurate or not, um, whether you're going to get a, a false node versus um, somebody that actually has clinically meaningful, significant um, palpation. Uh, on their digital exam that will be meaningful for the patient um, versus 50% likely to basically give them an unnecessary biopsy. Um, is there better uh, coordination if this is an expert doing a digital exam? Sure. I'm not going to disagree with some of the data that shows that if urology does a DRE, there's more value than if a PCP does a DRE. I'm not going to disagree with that, those studies. I'm not going to disagree that in the hands of some practitioners, maybe a DRE is uh, a better test than in others. But Ultimately, I think a DRE harms more than benefits, which is why the DRE has been removed from a lot of recommendations, digital exam being the DRE, that the DRE isn't recommended by most med medical major, major medical societies at this point uh, for general practitioners to do on patients. Um, if you're still doing it, okay, um, but just be be cautious that you know you could potentially be harming the patient with you know finding a lump or a nodule that ends up not being there and also missing a ton of prostate cancers because you're only able to feel a small portion of the prostate. Um, obviously, if you have a patient with a massive, rock-hard, awful uh, prostate that clearly is uh, cancer, uh, clearly malignancy, um, that, that changes things, but those are pretty rare to see. Urologists see those a lot more uh, frequently because obviously they see a lot more prostate cancers versus people that don't have cancer um, and are just getting screened at baseline. So um, I rambled there for about four extra minutes than I normally do uh, after the discussion on the article, just because I think this is a fascinating conversation that I have on a daily basis. Because as you guys know, that have been listening for a long time, I'm basically a practicing internist where I see a lot of old people and do a lot of prostate uh, cancer discussions with my old men because that's I do a ton of men's health. I do a ton of old dudes in my clinic. Um, and, and so, again, having this conversation, having these discussions, uh, knowing some of the numbers, knowing some of the number needed harms, number needed screens, I think are easy to talk about. Um, the fact that um, potentially you are being harmed by some of these screens versus there is some at least real world proof, at least the numbers are trending that way, that there is some value in reducing prostate cancer mortality recently in the last two decades. Um, overall, very 
dis, a very interesting topic to discuss a very complex uh, area. This is the gray part. Uh, this is the gray zone of medicine. This is not black or white. This is the art of medicine, the discussions, the patient shared decision-making, all the stuff I love about primary care to have those relationships with patients and then have a trust, a trusting conversation where you talk about the pros and the cons and you tailor medicine based on what their needs are, how frequently we're going to screen, how often, if there's a family history, if there's other fears or concerns, like these are the things that I love about medicine um, that, you know, aren't found in guidelines. So hopefully today was a helpful discussion. Uh, at least you, um, at least I got my once yearly discussion on prostate cancer screening out of the way. Hopefully we don't have to talk about it again. The take home is that, yeah, MRI might be helpful. Maybe there's a, 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 a portion in the future um, that are a, a a track in the future where we use MRI for screening. But overall, at, le at least at this point, the cost added to the system would be crazy high compared to the small benefit. The real benefit, based on this at least study of 1,500 people in Sweden, there's real benefit, but the cost probably definitely outweighs the small benefits seen. Um, I, I talked about that other study that shows that in the real world, yes, uh, there probably is some value in, in at least improving the numbers that are needed to screen or being uh, treating um, to diagnose and to treat. But at the same time, those numbers are still very big and would require a large number of MRIs to see any actual patient level outcome improvement. So um, anyways, uh, thanks for tuning in this week uh, and uh, hopefully you have a great week. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, remember, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks. God bless. Have a great week.